Lord God, we come before you once more with the heart of thankfulness that you have given us our word, your word. And regardless if it's physical or if it's electronic, Lord, um, your word is your word. It's eternal. It's living. And it will last forever. Lord, I just pray right now that you speak to all our hearts, that you fill this room, that you um, just anoint each and every single one of us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the assurances we have in you, the promises we have in you, and the expectations that we have in you as well, Lord. Lord, encourage us if we feel encouraged. We've been encouraged, discouraged this week. And give us more joy, Lord. Let us leave this room here today with the joy of the Lord in our hearts. We thank you for all your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the biggest and toughest lessons I had to learn in life is that people tend to give false assurances, break promises, and are easily disappointed when expectations are met. I used to get really angry and really upset and frustrated whenever it was done to me or when I would do it to others. As I matured though, as I began, wa began walking with the Lord more, um, I began to understand why people are so prone to fail. And then my perspective just began to change. So now, rather than hoping for the best but expecting the worst, I hope for the, I hope for the best and trust God with it. I also learned that people may disappoint me, but God never will. I titled this morning's messages, Assurances, Promises, and Expectations, because our passages will show us that in Jesus Christ, we have an absolute assurance that nothing is impossible with God. We have His promises on whatever you lose, He will tremendously give or give back. And we can confidently expect that He will boldly lead and guide us when the fear of the unknown becomes overwhelming. Throughout this morning's sermon, I hope that you will see and understand that you can completely trust in Jesus Christ to come through for you in every circumstance you currently find yourself in. So if you, again, if you have your Bibles, I want, you, I, want you to turn your, I want you to turn your attention to Mark chapter 10 as I begin reading from verse 23. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. Mark chapter 10, verse 23 says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard, it is, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Last week, we looked at an incident in which a rich young ruler had come to realize that in spite of all that he had, in spite of all his wealth, riches, fame, power, it still wasn't enough to satisfy a much deeper emptiness that was within him. He saw him, we saw him desperately come to Jesus to find out what he needed to do. Unfortunately, in verses 21 and 22, of that chapter of chapter 10 those verses tell us that what Jesus told him he ought to do was just too difficult for him he walked away from Jesus because he preferred to depend on the security of his wealth rather than on God he didn't want to deal with the challenges that true faith brings it was just too difficult for him our passage this morning picks up right after this young man had left the disciples had left, and the disciples were left standing with Jesus, unsure of what just happened. And can you imagine the scene? Again, this young, rich, young ruler just walked away, sad and grieving, and the disciples are there just dumbfounded. What, What just happened? You see, Jesus had called each and every one of them in a similar fashion, yet they decided to obey. They willingly obeyed. They willingly left everything behind and decided to follow Jesus. So why was this any different? Why was this situation any different? Why couldn't this rich young ruler do what, do what they all had done when Jesus asked him to follow, follow him? And we're going to be covering that as we go through our study, the reason why. Well, in verse 23, it tells us that Jesus looked around and said to, the, to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It then says that his disciples were astonished at his words. Why were they astonished? Because just like many people have been led to believe today, traditional Jews during this time believed, viewed wealth as God's stamp of approval. If someone was wealthy, if someone was rich, and have, someone had all the, you know, their, basically their needs met financially, it was believed that these people were blessed by God. It was just um, God had a special anointing on them, and they were automatically going to be going to heaven, and, and it was just a belief that they had. So Jesus repeats what he says by using an aphorism to reveal a spiritual truth concerning those who are rich. He says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle rather than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Notice, first of all, how he uses the term children. He does this to remind them of what he had just finished teaching them regarding the childlike faith that they ought to have. The childlike faith that values wisdom that comes from a father who knows the truth about everything. The childlike faith that 
you know, when you're giving words of wisdom to your child, they just look at you like, wow, this, this, my dad knows everything. My mom knows everything. It's that, it's that childlike faith. His point was that the rich will find it almost impossible to enter the kingdom of God because of the strong tendency to rely on their own wealth rather than on God to provide and protect them. Verse 20, 26 then says, They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Who then can be saved? In other words, they were whispering among one another, If it's impossible for those who are blessed by God with riches to be saved, then it must be impossible for everyone else to be saved. It's in the next verse that we find Jesus answering them with one of the greatest statements in all of scriptures, in all the scriptures. With men, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Have you ever looked at someone, maybe a celebrity on TV, um, or you know somebody that just was wealthy, had a lot of money, they had a lot of toys, they just, you know, they, they were really good in their business, however they achieved their wealth. Um, or even, and even, maybe even looked at someone who was on the street, someone homeless, someone or someone that just didn't have anything. And they were, you know, addicted to drugs, or maybe they were working the streets, or, you know, they're just, they, they're, they don't have anything at all. And thought to yourself, man, that, that person's pride, to, that person's too selfish, that person is too much of a drug addict, that person is, that person will never be saved. There's no hope for them. I know that, you know, those thoughts have crossed my mind. You, you know, you just, man, that person is just too stuck in their ways. And you just say, you know, man, I, I, I don't know. You know, I don't think that they'll ever be saved. The fact is that yes, it is impossible for any rich man and poor man to be saved. It takes a miracle for any man to be saved. Now, before I explain the point that Jesus is trying to make in verses 23 to 27, I want to take a moment to touch on a topic, real quickly on the topic of wealth and poverty. You see, how the world defines wealth and poverty is completely different than how the Word of God defines it. In our current social and political climate, people from the right generally assume that those who are poor must be that way because they're lazy. But from a biblical perspective, this isn't always the case. The Old Testament tells us there are four distinct types of people that are poor. The first type of poor people are those who refuse to work. Yes, these are the lazy ones that are, you know, that are refuse to work and are irresponsible. The second type of those who are poor become poor because events that are beyond because of events that are beyond their control. This could be um, a major sickness, a calamity. Um, it could be, you know, just a natural disaster. They become poor because of those events. The third type are those who have been exploited by the rich and powerful who have just been abused and all their money has been, someone cheated them and, and now they're, they don't have anything at all. And the fourth type are those who willingly embrace poverty because they decided to devote 
their lives serving God. Now, on the other hand, those, those people from the left generally assume that only one can become wealthy by corruption, by, the corruption, by corruption and the exploitation of others. But, this is important, according to the Bible, the truth about wealth is that every generous act and every perfect gift is from above. And it says that in James 1.17. If we look at poverty and wealth through the lens of the Bible, it becomes clear that God cares deeply about what we trust and what we do with what he entrusts us, entrust to us. If we put our confidence, if we put our faith, if we trust in the material wealth, we are trusting in something that absolutely cannot redeem us. It can't save us. It can't get us to heaven. Those things can't do that for us. Here in this case, using the rich young ruler as an example, the point Jesus is ultimately making is that one's entrance into the kingdom of God and eternal life are dependent upon God, not any human effort. All the worldly riches, fame, power, human success, and religious works will not earn you salvation. You see, the Bible tells us that salvation is a free gift from God to those who believe in Jesus Christ and place their faith in Him. Ephesians 2, 8, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is, a, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And Titus 3, 5, and in Titus 3, 5 it says, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of the regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. As we continue on, uh, yeah, let me um, continue on reading in verses 28. Says, Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. I assure you, I assure you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house, brothers, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Upon hearing Jesus say these words, upon hearing Jesus say what he said in verse 27, Peter decides to speak for the rest of the group and says, look, we've left everything and followed you. Almost, almost as if to say, but Jesus, what's, what's in it for us? We're not like that rich young ruler. We're not like that guy. We gave up everything. We gave up our entire lives. We dropped everything. 
in order to follow you. And as we see again in verses 29 and 30, Jesus assures them that the losses and sacrifices they made for him and the gospel will be minimal compared to what they'll receive in the age to come. Everything, everything they've already given up and everything that they will continue to give up. And we're going to see more of that. If you read Acts, you'll see how, how much more some of these disciples had to give up. Anything and, and all that stuff they, they will continue to surrender will not go unnoticed, he says. Especially if it causes hardships and persecutions. In my study, I decided to do a little bit of uh, history and um, of the church. And what I found is that throughout the history of the church, Christians have had to make unimaginable and endure tremendous losses because of their faith. Now, I'm just going to give a few examples here. In 64 AD, roughly maybe 30 years after Jesus died on the cross, a great fire broke out in Rome, destroying a big portion of the city and causing a big financial mess for the Romans and for the emperor. Many suspected that Emperor Nero, in a state of madness, in a state of craziness, set the fires himself. And listen to the, this is what a Roman historian, his name was Tacitus, wrote. To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Here's another one. Between 1899 and 1901, there was a violent anti-Western and anti-Christian uprising in China known as the Boxer Rebellion. It's been reported that during this Boxer Rebellion, 30,000 Chinese Catholics, 2,000 Chinese Protestants, and 200 to 400 of the 700 Orthodox Russian Christians were killed. And more, a little bit more recently, during Nazi Germany, Nazi uh, Christians who opposed Hitler and, its, and his Nazi version of Christianity were sent to concentration camps and suffered the same atrocities that were committed against the Jews. And currently, in Syria, ISIS is committing genocide against Christians. While their men are being massacred and while the men are being um, executed on social media, on YouTube. The women and children are being forced into sex slavery. That is, again, unimaginable suffering. I, can't, I mean, it's, as, as a Western American Christian, the thought of that happening here, it, it's just foreign. You can't, it, it's impossible, almost impossible to imagine, but it's being done, even to this day. And just Syria is just one one place. There's other places, other places in this in this world, where that's currently taking place. In North Korea, you can't even, you know, you know in that closed-off country, you, there is no religion. You can't. And if you're found with a Bible, or you're found teaching, or anybody is found talking about uh, Christianity or about Jesus, they get sent to prison camps, and they'll work them until they die. Sad. Despite these persecutions, though, I've read some stories. I've read stories of Christians who have never, who never wavered in their faith, 
they held on tightly to verses like 28 to 31 as they endured immense suffering. And in many cases, ne never letting go of these promises, even as they were being put to death. Now I'm aware that many of us have never had to suffer losses like this. But maybe some of you have suffered losses in other ways because you decided to follow Jesus. There may be some of you who have lost jobs, career advancements, financial opportunities, whatever it may be, you know, promotions, because you wouldn't compromise your faith. There may be some of you who have lost, who have lost family and close friends because you chose to be loyal and to obeying God rather than them. And that's just a couple of examples. Maybe there's other things that you've lost that you've lost as well. See, the thing is, you too can hold on to the promises, like verses 28 and 31, and know that God will reward your faithfulness if you've suffered loss because of Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn that loss. It's okay to just to move forward and I mean to, to be like to, to feel that sadness but then there comes a time when you have to move forward and when you move forward just can't look back this is what Jesus meant when he said in Luke 962 no one who put his hand to the plow and looks back it's is fit for the kingdom of God whatever you've lost because of Jesus Christ. You must continue to march on. You must continue to advance ahead. Look to God and continue, as hard as it is, continue to be willing to forsake everything in this world because of him. Now listen, I want to read a verse to you here. It's in Philippians. Um, if you can go there. Philippians chapter 3. And if you get there before I do, let me know what page it's on. Philippians chapter 3. It has a lot to say with what we're talking about here. About loss. Philippians chapter 3 is going to be in page 646. I want to read to you what it says from verse starting in verse 7. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 says, but but everything that was a gain to me, here's Paul speaking, okay? But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him with the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, 
being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Man, that's what I'm talking about. That's, he understand, he knew that he needed to rely and trust in Jesus Christ alone. There was nothing in this world, nothing at all, no material wealth, no relationships, nothing that can replace that. He had absolute confidence. That, again, he just, it was, this, anything this world had to offer was nothing compared to the riches that were going to wait him. And returning back to our text, says that in verse 31, Jesus then reminds him of something similar. He told them back in Mark, Mark 9.35. He tells them, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Here he wanted them to understand that everyone who sacrifices for the Lord will be rewarded. However, in this verse, Jesus is implying that God's ways of rewarding may not match man's ways of being rewarded. In that age, in that age that Jesus is talking about, when we're all united together in God's kingdom, I believe all of us, every single one of us is going to be surprised, amazingly surprised, when those rewards are handed out. Believers who have been blessed by God with money, power, success, and beauty, you know, all these things may find themselves having less rewards than those who lived this life who were poor, weak, and undesirable. However, whatever those rewards are, and however God chooses to hand them out, nothing, absolutely nothing, could be more, would be more rewarding than to be in the presence of God. I think, again, when we get up there and he says, you know what, Angel, you've been faithful with this and, and you gave up this, so I'm going to give you this. And uh, you know what, it, it, for me, I'm not looking forward to that. It's not even, doesn't even matter. And I, and I hope that, you know, and I, I, I believe that when I get there, I just, you know, I'm just going to put it back in Jesus' feet. Just say, you know what, Lord, just being in your presence, being here with you is what I've lived my life for. And this is my ultimate reward. This is what I lived for. And this is what I died for. And this, I, I, you know, and I will just worship him. Whatever rewards I get, it's not even about that. It's just about being there with the Lord. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon said. He said. He said here, in the final account, it shall be found that no man has been a loser through giving up anything for the Lord Jesus Christ, though he has his own method of deciding who are to be first and who are to be last. Friends, let me be clear. When it comes to the sacrifices we make as believers, regardless whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, this is what it boils. It boils down to this. The extent in which we give is the extent in which our needs will be met in this life and to which heaven will be enjoyed. You see, in God's eternal kingdom, the only thing that will matter is faithfulness to Christ. 
Now I want you to follow along as I read something else Jesus tells his disciples while, they're, while they were making their way to Jerusalem. And it's going to be in the following verse. Verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished. But those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. That's what Jesus said. Listen, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. The first thing that should automatically stick out to you is that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus led his followers with bold confidence and assurance. He walked ahead of them with a clear sense of purpose. This is the reason why we see the disciples so astonished. Jesus wasn't anxious or afraid of what lay ahead of them in, in, in Jerusalem. He's walking down the road. And this is something I learned when I was when I was going through boot camp, was that you know you learn to walk with confidence. They teach you. You know what? Walk with a purpose. Walk like you know. Even if you don't know where you're going, even if you don't know, you know what's over there. You just you walk with a purpose. You don't slump. You don't. You know. You just walk. Walk confidently and with a purpose. And this is what see Jesus knew exactly what was going on. That's why he was just so confident. Even, even he, he even after he knowing what lay ahead of him. He was still walking with this confidence and boldness. However, this wasn't the case for everyone else that was following Jesus. It says, but those who followed him were afraid. Unlike the confidence that we see, that we see in Jesus, his followers were scared and anxious because of the uncertainty that lay ahead. Now realizing the seriousness of the situation that was about to take place, he takes the disciples aside and he began to tell them the things that, were, uh, that would happen to him. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make it when I'm there and a lot of bad things are going to happen. He doesn't sugarcoat them. He tells them exactly, for the third time, what to expect when they get to Jerusalem. He tells them he'll be handed over to the religious leaders first and then to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, spat upon, beaten, and then be killed. And then after three days, he will rise again. And here, after this third time of him telling them, telling them this, we see that disciples this time didn't argue or question him, question Jesus at all. In, I'll tell you an interesting story. In, in battle, in any battle, 
A military unit will be given a mission with a clear objective. In some cases, the only person that knows the purpose of that, object of that objective is the unit commander. For that mission to be successful, that commander needs to ensure that the men he's leading trust him and are confident in his ability to lead. At the minimum, a good commander will also brief his men on what to expect in battle without violating the confidentiality of that mission. If that commander can accomplish that, his men will fight tooth and nail to ensure that that mission is completed regardless of that outlook. If he doesn't lead them, if he shows a hint of fear, insecurity, if he doesn't give them that confidence, fear of the unknown may creep in and demoralize that unit. And this is what we see Jesus doing here. Even though his followers may have been fearful, they see him leading them with boldness and confidence. In addition, though, he also clearly, expla and he clearly explains to his disciples on what to expect. In, in the Old Testament, God used kings, prophets, and priests to let his people know what to expect if they obeyed and disobeyed. However, God also told them to expect the Messiah to deliver them from oppression, to deliver them from sin, to free them from all those things that were oppressing them. In the New Testament, Jesus showed us what to expect if we chose to believe and trust in him. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came down and used men to give us further guidance on what we should expect as followers of Christ. See, God knows our nature. He knows what's inside of us. He knows our flesh. He knows our heart. He knows that there will be times when we will doubt him by being anxious and afraid of that which is unknown, of that which is ahead. I've said this story a few times, but we were. I, and I mean, personally, I was, I was anxious and afraid of leaving my home church and coming to plant a new one. I didn't know what to expect. It was sometimes overwhelming for me. And I'm sure my wife could tell you the same thing. But I held on. You know, I, I knew and I trusted God. I knew that if this is believing that this is what he called me to do. And so regardless, again, even if one person comes and one person, or even if the, it was just me, I'm still going to be proclaiming the, the word. You know, it says, you know, we read in the Bible that, you know, even if, even if no one is there to proclaim where the rocks will shout. Again, the, the, yeah, it's going to be scary and anxious just to move forward. If God call you to do something, you know what, if he's on your side, if he's there with you, man, you know you're going to be blessed. Yeah, there may be some difficulties. There may be, but you know what? He's shaping and molding you, and he's working and he's doing all these things in your life. And you'll see. You'll see the great works he's going to do. 
Again, there will be times to be anxious and afraid, especially if the unknown looks ominous and bleak. But as a Christian, whenever you find yourself anguished and afraid of what may lay ahead, be comforted. Be encouraged that you have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords leading you. Wherever Jesus Christ takes you, He will lift you when you fall. He will carry you when you're broken. He will heal you when you're wounded. And when you finally arrive at that destination, yes, there may be some cuts and bruises. You may have a bloody eye and you just may be exhausted. But he will be there to raise you up in victory. Our passages this morning, as I conclude, I want in our passages this morning, I want you to see that in Jesus Christ, you can have the assur- assurance that what you or anyone may consider to be an, an impossible situation, with God, that isn't the case. With God, all things are possible. You also have a promise from Jesus Christ that every loss incurred because of him and the gospel will be minimal compared to what you'll eventually receive from him. And finally, in Jesus Christ, you can expect that he will lead you and guide you when doubt, fear, and anxiousness of the unknown will begin to overwhelm you. You can expect that he will ultimately lead you to victory. You know why? Because he's already won. He already has the final victory. He wants to be there. He wants to be there, and he is going to be there when finally we have that victory in him. He will raise us up. He will hold us up. And that's something I'm so looking forward to. If you've been looking for those assurances, if that's you. If you've been looking for those assurances, promises and expectations in other places, but have been disappointed time and time again, God wants to give you an opportunity to freely receive it, to freely receive those assurances, promises, and expectations. All he wants you to do is accept it, to receive it, by believing and placing your trust in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, money, fame, power, and worldly success won't satisfy that inner emptiness. Only the Holy Spirit can. When the Spirit comes in, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit comes in, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells, makes his home inside of you. And it's this Holy Spirit that leads and guides you. He teaches you through the Word of God all those things that God wants to show you and teach you. And it's then, again, He starts satisfying those that inner entity. He starts filling that hole that's been deep within you. And then you start understanding things more. And things start making more sense. Things start to be more clear. And that emptiness that you once felt, 
that emptiness that will used to be filled by alcohol, drugs, women, um, whatever it may be, shopping, whatever it may be, it starts being filled by just the Word of God, by our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who will encourage you, and He's the one that will, again, just give you those, fulfill every single need that you have. That's 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 uh, you've been yearning for. Others, other people may see you. Even as even if others see you as an impossible case, you gotta understand. With God, all things are possible. No one, no matter how impossible they may appear to be as long as you're breathing as long as you're living as long as your heart is beating as long as that person's heart is beating they're not beyond God's love mercy and grace if you've ever been told that or if you've been led falsely led to believe that again they're lies from the devil they're lies from the enemy you are worth it, regardless of what you've done, regardless of all the sins, no matter what, you know, everything that you, you've, you can think and you're like, start to cringe and you're not beyond his love. He wants to embrace you and he wants to forgive you and he wants to tell you, you know what, it's okay. It's okay, my son. It's okay, my daughter. I love you. I forgive you. The thing is, you have to come and accept it. My kids know that I love them. My nephew knows that I love them. They don't have to earn it. They know that I do. My daughter, she knows that I love her. They don't have to earn my love. They know, and all I have to do again is just receive it. You know, my, my daughter can do something bad and you know, she can say sorry, and, you know, I know her. I know that when she's sincere, and, you know, I'll forgive her. I'm not going to hold a grudge against her. Same thing with my wife. You know, we argue sometimes. We, we have disagreements. But you know what? I love my wife. And you know what? God has a greater love. A love that, again... We can try to explain, but at the end of the day, it's just completely unimaginable. Again, all you have to do is come to him broken, with a heart of just surrender. He wants you to surrender your life to him. Yes, there may be some things that you want to hold on to. There may be some things, whether it's wealth or whether it's items or whether it's things. But if you start now by surrendering your life to him, he will show you what those things are. And he'll eventually start convicting you about these things you have to give up. And he'll tell you, you know what? You have, you want to continue, you want to grow, you want to just feel more of my love, then surrender it. It's okay, he'll say. that's you and you've never done that and and that's what you desire to do 
Then in a minute, we're going to be closing up in prayer. And I'm going to lead you in, in, in a prayer to ask Jesus Christ into your heart. So right now, everybody close your eyes. And let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your assurances, promises, and that in you, we can expect that you will lead us even when we're scared. Or all these other things of this world, may they fade away. May they just, we don't want to hold on to them, Lord. We want to hold on to you. You've given us so many good things. All these blessings have been gifts from you, Lord. And we are, we're thankful for them, but you know what, Lord? At the end of the day, we, we just don't want to hold on to, to, to what you, for the, to these things. We just want to hold on to you. Lord God, there may be some who are listening or watching that have never had that assurance, that have never had those promises and that have always been scared of the unknown. Lord, right now, for those who are searching for it, for those who have been wanting it, and those who want to find it in Jesus Christ, I pray for them right now, Lord. I pray you touch their hearts and show them that in you, they can have those things. They can have that assurance that with you all things are possible. They can have those promises that whatever they lose, they'll have so much more. And that in you, in walking with you, Lord, you'll be with them walking ahead of them in, in boldness and confidence. If you're watching and you're ready to surrender and give up your life to Jesus Christ, just pray this in the quietness of your heart, wherever you're at. Lord God, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. I surrender my life to you. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And right now, I place my trust in him. I accept your forgiveness, Lord God. And I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your love and fill me with your grace.
desire from this faith from this day forward to walk in obedience of you walk in obedience to you if you've prayed that welcome to the kingdom of God Lord, also pray for every single individual that's here right now, every single person, every single young man, every single person that has that heart for you, Lord. Pray for them that you continue to encourage them and show them, give them, remind them of these words, Lord. Remind them that again, that in you and with you, they have the final victory. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this time. We ask that you bless the rest of this day. Bless the rest of this week. Use us in mighty ways. May we just continue to be the salt and light in our workplaces, in our schools. And let us be, just be good examples of of your children in those areas, in those places, Lord. Continue to bless this time of fellowship. And may you watch everyone, protect everyone, until um, we see each other the, final, the following week. Lord willing, we pray all these things in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.